The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. I'll be reading from Ephesians 2:11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Mayus, how's everyone doing? Good. Uh, a while back, Hedger and I, Pastor Josh and I, were meeting um, and we were just discussing kind of where we've been uh, through our sermons and where we want to go next. And we were kind of talking about what, what we think our people need, what we need, what we've been lacking, uh, what, we've been, what we've been faithful in. And here at Emmaus, we believe in the style of preaching that we call expository preaching. And basically what that means is we like to, to pick a book and walk verse by verse through that book so we don't miss anything. I, I can't avoid the hard passages, Hedger can't avoid the hard passages, and we have to let the scripture be the authority instead of a man. I have one issue with expository preaching. You probably never thought you would ever hear me say that. One issue. My issue is this. There, there are serious issues going on in the culture today. Serious issues going on in the world today that you can actually hide from preaching because of expository preaching. L- let me explain that. Uh, for instance, uh, you could pick any number of topics, any number that we're, to- we're going to cover in this series. Racial reconciliation, homosexuality, abortion, uh, sanctity of life, anything like this. You can, you can take any of these major cultural issues that we're confronted with and say, well, I'll deal with them whenever the text gets there. And then you can make sure, by what books you pick, to make sure the text never gets there. And that's not faithful preaching on our behalf if we don't address these issues that are deeply important to the gospel and to Christianity from a, a crucified perspective, um, trying to glorify the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I, I approached Hedger and I approached Sam and just asked them to consider, uh, would you guys be interested in doing a series uh, that, where we address some of the major issues that, that are happening in our culture today uh, that we could lay open the word of God and from a gospel-centered perspective, can we examine major issues that we might not examine if we just stick to expository preaching, even if it's just four weeks long? And by the grace of God, they both loved the idea, and we immediately started thinking of what issues do we want to cover. So then, the product is this series, The Gospel and Culture. We hope in the next four weeks to walk together through issues of race, life, sexuality, and family. Four issues that all of us are confronted with, most likely on a daily, if not weekly basis, and that all of us, if we're going to remain faithful in the current climate and the current current of our culture, we we must think about these things critically from a gospel-centered perspective if we truly want to be ambassadors of reconciliation living in 21st century America. So, I want to begin this series with a few caveats, with a few ground rules, if you will, for us as a church. Due to the nature of these issues, it's important for us as your pastoral team to be upfront with what we want to do and what we expect you all to do. We want to be upfront with what we're desiring for each of our members at Emmaus. So then, I'm going to straight read this. During our series, here's a few caveats, so be paying attention. One, we must proceed 
with Christian humility and generosity. Due to the controversial nature of these issues, there is a possibility and most likely that you will disagree with something we say from the pulpit or disagree with something that your fellow church members say. We are asking from the forefront for Christian humility and generosity. I hope that this series allows us to be transparent about these issues, bringing our honest questions, honest problems, and and any issues we might have in hopes that we can repent of what is sin, revel in what we've been redeemed from, and walk in freedom that Christ has granted us. Therefore, I ask you to proceed in this series lying aside assumptions that you know all there is to know regarding any of these topics. Furthermore, I hope that you would take the posture that one of your brothers and sisters in Christ with their unique experiences can actually teach you something that you might not have thought of in regards to each of these issues. In sum, be generous and humble. Two, we must proceed with a careful Christian mind. And hear me, if you're a member of this church, pay very close attention. We must proceed with a careful Christian mind. Some of these issues are deeply complicated. And while our culture and some of our friends and family want to try to sum them up with a meme or a short sarcastic video on Facebook, we will not fall for this tragic temptation. These issues are not issues that should be argued by one-liners on social media, but they should be thought through carefully, with nuance, examining what the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God actually has to say about each item. We as Christians are free to pursue clarity, carefulness, and nuance in our mind, and we have the chance to show the culture what it looks like to be critical and careful. With the scriptures as our source, the Spirit as our guide, and the glory of God as our goal, we will think carefully about each of these complicated issues. Three, a word to the parents. Due to the sensitivity of some of these issues, we wanted to let you know ahead what we will be discussing on what weeks so you can determine whether or not you want your children sitting in for some of these sensitive topics. So then this week, we will discuss racial reconciliation. Next week, we will discuss life and the image of God. Sam, uh, I I know, is going to preach a faithful sermon on this topic, discussing a a gospel-centered position on what it truly means to be pro-life, taking a negative stance, a ferociously negative stance against abortion, and a ferociously gospel-positive stance towards adoption, foster care, taking care of the elderly, taking care of the mentally ill, etc. We'll talk about life and the image of God next, next week. The third week, we will cover, Pastor Josh will cover what it means to have a gospel-centered understanding of sexuality. Some people in this church, you're probably going to want to to take your kids out of this service, to be totally frank, the third week from today, two weeks from today. Uh, We'll we'll talk about a whole range of sexuality, including homosexuality and and things like that, and some of you might not consider it kid-friendly, so I wanted to give you that warning. And in the fourth week, we will talk about what the gospel has to say about our families and what it means to be um, in relation to one another. Lastly, number four, it's our fourth caveat, we must proceed with Christian love that leads to repentance. We have, hear me, this is careful, we have about 100 members of this church, okay? There's about 100 of you who have gone through the process and are members. So then, hear me, I can guarantee you, just representative and members alone, not the visitors, just members alone, all four of these topics will be represented in our membership. All of them. All of them. Racism will be represented. Problems with sexuality will be represented. Deep issues with family will be represented. Uh, uh, Issues with with life, abortions will be represented. Uh, Adoptions will be represented. Just within our 100 members. So then, we will actually be dealing with real problems of actual people. So so I, I urge you. If you have a a, thank God that problem doesn't exist at our church mentality, it's not going to be helpful for us. Because I can guarantee you, they do. Therefore, in our interactions with one another, in our conversations, over meals, in our groups, um, over coffee shops, we must proceed with a type of Christian love that creates a culture where it's okay to confess sin with any of these issues, regardless of how disgusting they may be to us. It's okay to confess any of these issues and at the same time have the type of Christian love that hears the repentance and will assure them that I will walk 
with you through what it looks like to be reconciled in this issue. We must have a Christian love that leads to repentance. You got it? Four caveats for the series. Awesome. That's a long introduction. Let's jump into the gospel and racial reconciliation by praying. God, you are unbelievably gracious. And we realize this this morning when we come in as broken men and women who have deep baggage, deep sin, with numerous topics, including the four issues that we've mentioned already. If we stand redeemed, it's only because you've made it so. And so as we come together and we sing songs like the the wonderful grace of Jesus is, is greater than my sin, Lord, we recognize, we have, as, as a church, as a people, we have experienced an infinitely more amount of grace than we ever should have even dreamed of. And so, God, I'm asking for that to continue as we move forward in this series. I pray for grace over the preachers who, who will take the very difficult task of coming to the pulpit with these uh, very complicated and nuanced issues. I pray for our members who will hear. I pray that pride will be destroyed, that idols will be broken down, that bitterness would be unharbored, and that you would be glorified. I pray that as you look down on this series, that you would delight in what we say and what we do and how we repent and how we love one another and how we take care of one another and walk with one another hand in hand as the actual unified body of Christ with many colors, with many backgrounds, with much brokenness, with much sin, and most importantly, a much gracious, gracious God. We're desperate for you in this series. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Like I said in the ground rules, some of these issues are complicated, and I would argue that racial reconciliation is up at the forefront of that. Uh, Racial reconciliation is not an easy issue. Honestly, I had a a miniature panic attack at one point, praying and thinking through the sermon. I've been working on the sermon for about a month, and normally my my schedule doesn't allow me to do that, but but I've read multiple books on the topic, I've I've talked with multiple people, thought through this, prayed through this, and at one point it just felt like the topic was so heavy that I wasn't going to be able to craft it in a 50-minute sermon. And and I was just talking to my wife, Kristen, saying, what am I going to do? There's there's so much to say. This is a complicated issue. It's never going to be solved over social media, especially not on Facebook, especially not through memes. We must think carefully about this issue. And and with with all of that, there's one thing that I want to say. If you don't hear me say anything about racial reconciliation, please do. But if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. It's not a side effect of the gospel. It's not just an implication of the gospel. It itself is a gospel issue. And if that's true, you know as a church we want to be a gospel people. And so if racial reconciliation is truly a gospel issue, we must be about it and think of it as the utmost importance. It is a gospel issue. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles to Ephesians 2 yet, go ahead and do that. Ephesians 2. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible, in my opinion, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you probably know fairly well. But we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember. All right, so he starts off with the word therefore. Very important for you Bible readers, which I hope is all of you. When you see the word therefore, you go back. Because he's talking about something he just said. So therefore, remember, he says. And what he wants his audience to remember is what he had just said in verses 1 through 10. I don't have time, unfortunately, to unpack all of 1 through 10, but here's what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, literally in the grave, could not do anything to help yourself spiritually dead. Right? Dead men do nothing to help their salvation, to help their spirituality. But Jesus saw your helpless to stay in the grave six feet under, and he didn't leave you alone to rot, but he put on flesh and did something about your helpless estate. And he came after you, lived a perfect life, died a death that you should have died to give you a reward that he should have given, which is eternal life, and he lifted you to make you alive in him. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are alive with Christ. Got it? That's Ephesians 1, 2, 1 through 10. Read it and memorize it. Okay, so that's what you got to keep in your mind when he says, therefore, remember. Therefore, remember, he goes on to say, at one time you Gentiles, which Paul is going to address two different people in this passage, two different parties, if you will, the Jews and the Gentiles. From what I know about our church, I think I can say with confidence that all of us in here are Gentiles. 
because the, the word Gentile can, can truly just be understood as anyone who's a non-ethnic Jew. Right, so if you're not born Jewish, which we might have some Jewish people in, in our church, but if, if you weren't born Jewish, you're a Gentile. So, so Paul says that these Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Paul says. And, and what, what he's saying here, remember, there's two parties. There's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. And, and apparently what was happening was the Jews who are called the circumcision Right, because in their Jewish practice, they required that at least on the eighth day of, of an infant's birth that he would be circumcised, that the, those who were called the circumcision, who observed the, the religious practice of circumcision, were looking at the Gentiles who didn't observe that religious Jewish practice, and they were calling them the uncircumcision as a derogatory term. Right, so it's one group of ethnicity calling another group of ethnicity a derogatory term because of something they didn't observe. Got it? Sweet. Okay, he goes on, verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. This is a, this is a tough verse, because he's reminding the Gentiles of their former state pre-Christ. And he doesn't hold any punches, does he? He says, they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the promise, that's all of the promises of the Old Testament, they had no hope in the world, in case it wasn't bad enough. He says, you had no hope in the world. And so basically the Gentiles, in terms of spirituality, had nothing. The reason this matters for our text is because there was a serious hatred between these two groups of people. The Jews thought of themselves as clean, while the Gentiles were unclean. There, there are even stories of godly men in the scriptures, like Peter, for example. Right? You, you know this story. He goes and he sits and he's eating with the, the Gentiles until the Jewish brothers show up. And once the Jewish brothers show up, he's so embarrassed that he's eating with the Gentiles that he retreats and begins eating with the Jews, for which Paul rebukes him to his face. He says, you hypocrite. And he says he's walking out of step with the gospel because the Jews thought the Gentiles were unclean. The Jews were the people of God, the holy ones, and the Gentiles were the pagans who didn't know God. Yet, in God's economy, all that was about to change. Verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just like there was an, impor an important turn in, in, in chapter 2, 1 through 10, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, with the great love he had for us, made us alive together in Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Just like that, that important but God, that turn, there's another turn in this part. 11 through 22, when it says, but now, you were, you were aliens, you were far off, you did have no hope, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we know, as Gentiles, the price for us being brought near was expensive. For we, just like the Jews, are brought near to God by the blood of his murdered son. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 14 and following is the apex of Paul's argument in chapter 2. Um, even though I love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you just read the chapter of Ephesians 2 about this beautiful salvation that you receive individually, you are missing the point of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is an argument talking about two groups who were once enemies being made friends in the gospel, Jews and Gentiles. So two parties, the Jews and the Gentiles, who have had deep hostility between them, with one particular group thinking they're more valued than the other group, has a dividing wall of hostility that would be bro broken down in the flesh of Jesus. This deep divide that was found between Jews and Gentiles as ethnic entities is mended and brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. You, you see where this is going? Good. Verses 15 through 17. I'm sorry we're flying. We have so much to cover. So hopefully you're, you can keep up, keep tracking with me. Bring your thinking caps. 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I absolutely love this text. Paul is saying that in the person of Jesus Christ, so in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he is making one new man. A extremely vital phrase 
to understand gospel-centered racial reconciliation. He's making one new man. There were two men, Jews and Gentiles, and he's bringing them under the same banner of Christian. Look at verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Two groups who despise each other are now one, and it gets even better. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are members of the household of God, built on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so this is easy to read over. It's easy to read over in light of how how unbelievably beautiful verses 1 through 10 are. But hear me, there's just as much beauty in 11 through 22. He is talking about the major theological reality that in Christ, two different parties who hate each other can now be one. Which, by the way, he will say later about marriage. If you know Ephesians well, you know that in chapter 5, he gets to to, to marriage, right? He talks about the family. And he he says about marriage, he says this, of this mystery... I tell you, it refers to the gospel. And he just goes on. And so he calls marriage the mystery of the gospel, to which when you read it, you're probably left wondering, well, what does that mean? The marriage is the mystery of the gospel. And what Paul means when he says that marriage is the mystery of the gospel, he's equating it to this mystery. In the gospel, there's the power to take two entities and make them one. In marriage, it's a man and a wife who are made one flesh. In the church, it's the the Jews and the Gentiles who are made one under the the new temple, the new dwelling of the church. The mystery of the gospel is that God has the power to take two entities and to make them one, man and woman, Jew and Gentile. And then Paul says we we have access to, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Jews and Gentiles. That Gentiles aren't strangers and aliens anymore, but rather we're fellow citizens and members of the same household. And now this household metaphor is really important for us to keep in our minds. It's important because he says it's built on the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone. This, this piece without the whole would fall apart. Then he says that with all of us together, right? He's building a t- together into a dwelling place for God. That we are growing into a holy temple. So, so keep in mind who he's talking to here. He's talking to first century Jews and Gentiles. This, this doesn't sound controversial to us at all. But hear me, it is. Because if you think about the actual temple that, that, that Jews have in their minds as Paul's talking to them, you, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that the outer court of the temple was what? It was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were only allowed in the outer court of the temple. And then Jewish women were allowed a little bit further into the temple. Remember, God's dwelling place is the center of the tabernacle. So the closer you can get into the middle, the closer you are to God. Gentiles were only allowed on the outside barrier. Women, Jewish women were allowed a little bit further than them. But only some Jewish men on some days, on some occasions, under the right circumstances, could go even further to get to the dwelling place of God. Right, so you have this unbelievably separate and segregated understanding of the temple. And he's saying, together, we're growing, Jews and Gentiles, as a new temple. First century Jews would have not have liked this idea. Right, they already don't like Gentiles. So if Paul would have said, oh yeah, by the way, because of the gospel, Gentiles can now come to the inner court. They would have said, no, 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 no. But he didn't just say that. He took it further. And he says, Gentiles and Jews together are the new temple. We are the place where God's going to dwell because we are the church together. This would not have gone over well with first century Jews. So then, Gentiles aren't just allowed into the temple. They are a part of the temple as they've been grafted into the church. We are being built together into the temple. And thank God he didn't just use Middle Eastern Jewish men as bricks to build his church. He used Gentile bricks. And we know that since he's redeeming a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, by his grace, he's going to use American bricks and African bricks and Asian bricks and European bricks and every brick that you can think of from tribes that you've never even heard of are going to be a brick used to build this new temple, the dwelling place of God. The power of God and the gospel is seen in a thousand ways. And one of them is that in Jesus Christ, there is the grace to make 
enemy's friends. There is the grace to take two people who have hostility towards one another and tear down the dividing wall of hostility and prejudice so that in Christ we are made one new man, the church, a new dwelling place for God. So then, I hope you can see that in this text, this, 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 this few verses alone, that what I stated in the beginning of the sermon is, is deeply true, that racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. For it is concerning salvation. The gospel is news of Jesus Christ coming and redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who have been made alive together in Christ. If you are not a fan, hear me, if you are not a fan of a multicolor, multilingual, multicultural society, then you're not going to be a fan of the kingdom of God. For Jesus is redeeming those who are red, yellow, brown, black, white, polka dotted, and anything in between. And he's building them together as one new man to be his dwelling place. Hand in hand, loving one another, and actual unity will be a multicolored church. So now then, just because racial reconciliation is a gospel issue does not mean it will be an easy issue. In fact, if history tells us anything, it is that racial reconciliation is going to be a deeply difficult and slow process. Therefore, if you're a note taker, this is where you probably want to start taking notes. Therefore, I want to walk through a few aspects together of what gospel-centered racial reconciliation is and isn't, okay? I think I have four points or so, who knows? There might, that might grow as we talk. Number one, gospel-centered racial reconciliation recognizes racism for what it is, and that is sin. Racism is sin that is in direct violation of the will of God and is a direct assault on the image of God. Racism is a sin that is in direct violation of the will of God and is a direct assault on the image of God. We see in the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that one of the most deeply important things affected by, by, by the misbehavior of Adam and Eve is human relationships. Do we not see that? Right? They eat of the fruit and they're quickly, very quickly, blaming one another for what happened. And then just a page later, in chapter 4, you have a brother killing a brother. Human relations are torn apart because of sin. And it is that same sin that brings hostility against races for one another. Whether it be white to black, or black to white, or black to Asian, or whatever combination you can think of, that any racism that exists between one race to another is sinful. It is sin that causes a brother to kill a brother in Genesis 3. And it is the same sin that caused a black man to drink from a separate water fountain in 1960. It is sin. Sin has destroyed humankind's relations to one another. Therefore, if racism is truly a sin issue, there, the cure must be uniquely Christian. If racism is a sin issue, the cure must be uniquely Christian. For we know that in Christ there is a true cure for sin. The world might have um, uh, examples or they might have um, exercises or things they can do to try to cover up the ugliness of sin, try to mask the sin of racism. Yet in Christ we not only have a mask to cover the ugliness of racism, we have the blood of a Savior that makes enemies one and completely and utterly destroys the dividing wall of hostility between any race. There are a few areas in, in all of the world, that there, there are a few like racial reconciliation in which the church can be a prophetic witness to our culture. The world has tried racial reconciliation, and it's not working. Yet we have the answer in Christ being built together as a new temple. We can show the world and the culture what true gospel repentance and true gospel unification looks like. Number two. Gospel-centered racial reconciliation doesn't look like denying there is a problem. In the 1800s, there was a group of black slaves beaten and arrested in downtown Parkville, Missouri, because they got together, how dare them, they got together for a church service to hear one of their black brothers preach the gospel. It was illegal in the 1850s, this happened in 1854, it was illegal in the 1850s for a group of black men to get together or black women to get together without the supervision of a white authority.
to keep up, to keep watch. And so as they gathered for their church service, they were beaten and arrested and fined. Uh, furthermore, a couple of years later, a mob of angry, this is a quote, a mob of angry whites reacted to abolitionist articles in the Parkville newspaper, an underground newspaper, the Industrial Luminary. They stormed the newspaper building, seized the printing press, and they threw it into the Missouri River in downtown Parkville. George Park, the paper's editor and the future founder of Park College, was banished and kicked out of Parkville forever. J.C. Nichols, right, we're going to go into another century, now we're in the 19th century. J.C. Nichols, who was one of the most rich men to ever live in Kansas City, ever, founded the Country Club Plaza and about 10 other areas of Kansas City, but his most prominent was the plaza. J.C. Nichols was a blatant racist who, when he built the plaza, did not allow blacks to come into the plaza. And furthermore, he had a law that black people weren't allowed to build a home or take residence within 2,500 feet of the plaza. J.C. Nichols has the main road in the plaza named after him, Nichols Road. When you're driving through the plaza, you're on Nichols Road. When you're driving into the plaza in front of P.F. Chang's, there's a fountain there called Nichols Fountain. Blatant racist. If when I'm telling you these stories, inside you have something that says, yeah, but that was the 1800s and 1900s, and this is 2017, let me assure you, you have a seriously ignorant understanding of the way history works. If you think that the 1800s and the 1900s have no bearing on 2017, you do not understand the consequence of ideas. History affects history affects history. Denial will get us nowhere in racial reconciliation. Denial of what's happened in the past and denial of the realities of the current will get us nowhere. Bring it to today, all right? This is where I might step on some toes, and I'm all right with it. Let me talk directly to my white brothers and sisters. If you deny, we're talking about denial here, if you deny the reality of white privilege, you are prolonging the problem. If you say that a black man from the northeast side of Kansas City who puts in the exact same amount of work as you do, if you don't think it's, if you don't think it's true that if he puts in the exact same amount of work as you do as a white park villain and can't get the exact same results, you're part of the problem. White privilege is a reality, and if you look into the world and don't see it, you're looking into the world of illusions and falsehood. Part of repentance of racial reconciliation is realizing what's going on. Part of keeping the idolatrous reality that one race might be better than the other is, is, is the inability to, to affirm and own up to what's happening. If that reality makes you feel insecure about your work ethic or about your value, hear me, as a loving brother in Christ and probably as one of your pastors, you might have a hidden form of racism somewhere inside of you that needs to be repented of. Denying won't get us anywhere. We must own that all suffer from some sort of racism. I don't care if you're white, black, yellow, red, brown, or striped. You probably have some form of racism that needs to be repented of. Start humbly repenting and walking with one another. Number three. So number one is that we, we must understand racism for what it is. That's sin. Number two is that we must not deny the reality that there is a problem, even if it's within us. Number three, the path forward to true gospel-centered racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation is not going to be quick, and it's not going to be easy. True racial reconciliation isn't going to come overnight. It's going to be a process. We can see attempts, right? This is important. We can see attempts at rushed racial reconciliation all around us, right? So companies will hire uh, uh, an ethnic minority for the sake of having more diversity on their staff, right? And, and the companies hope that this will, will showcase uh, ethnic diversity. Yet in most cases, what is happening is just the establishment of racial diversity, not racial reconciliation. And hear me, this happens in the church as well. Churches who desire racial diversity, which is a good thing, when we're in heaven, it will be a racially diverse place. So wanting racial diversity is a great thing. It's a kingdom thing. But churches will get excited when they start seeing brothers and sisters of color, of ethnic minority, coming to Sunday gatherings. Yet, we cannot, hear me, we cannot confuse long-term racial reconciliation for short-term racial diversity. My fear is 
We'll get 30 ethnic minorities represented on a Sunday morning, and yet when church is over, our black brothers are going to eat with their black friends, and our white brothers are going to eat with their white friends, and our yellow sisters are going to eat with their yellow friends. You see the problem? Coexisting on a Sunday morning for an hour with people who don't look like you is not racial reconciliation. Having deep friendships with people who don't look like you or sound like you or have the same background as you where you actually love one another and are actually doing life with one another, that's racial reconciliation. Not just coexisting in the same area, taking up the same space. When brothers and sisters who are deeply different from you deeply love you, that's racial reconciliation. Another, another quick fix at racial reconciliation is the silly notion, the silly idea of being colorblind. Again, some of you might be offended here, but, but hear me out. There are many well-meaning Christians in the world and non-Christians who have put forward this idea, and you've heard it, that there is only one race, the human race. Right? This, this, this is the all lives matter movement. There's only one race, the human race. The problem with this idea is that it's wrong. Right, it's wrong. There is more than one race. There is. We can, we can say that. It's all right. The problem with this idea is that a gospel-centered approach to race doesn't get rid of races. It's a silly and unnuanced idea that we could actually be colorblind and play pretend that races don't exist. Instead, the gospel doesn't ask us to play make-believe about race and pretend they don't exist. The gospel, in a way that's infinitely more beautiful than ignorance, instructs us that the blood of God's murdered son redeems all races, each with their own unique histories, cultural realities, baggage, and all. All races uniquely are redeemed by Jesus Christ. So instead of a colorblind church where we're all walking around as gray nobodies, God is redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue, and in so doing is creating a perfectly beautiful mosaic with colors that we might not even know exist. The church is going to be colorful, not colorblind. A gospel-centered approach to racial reconciliation isn't to pretend they don't exist. It's to see that God is redeeming all of them. The road to true racial reconciliation isn't going to be a quick fix. It is not going to be solved over internet memes, hires, or one-liners. It is going to be a long journey marked by honesty, humility, listening, and repentance. Next point. Gospel-centered racial reconciliation must be marked by humility. It must be marked by humility. Can we just admit, this is not an easy topic. Like, there were multiple times when I was writing this sermon, I literally thought to myself, can I say that? Like, will I offend this particular ethnicity if I say that thing? And that, that struggle is in you, is it not? This topic is big. It's nuanced. It isn't easy, and therefore we must proceed with humility. And hear me, the gospel allows us to do that. Not only does the gospel give us the cure to racism, it gives us the path on how to approach it. Because in the gospel, we know this. That our deepest cry, our deepest need has been heard. Right? It's been heard. Our deepest need was the cure from sin and the, and the redeeming and justifying work of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, we've gotten that. So we no longer have this, this cry that needs to be heard that isn't being heard. Our cry has been heard. And therefore, we've been freed to listen to the cries of others. We can listen and be humble. We need to hear one another's stories. We need to hear one another's pains when it comes to racism, when it comes to racial reconciliation. We need one another. You will not solve this problem on your own. You will not. We need to have the humility and posture that won't, that says that we don't know everything and we can actually learn from one another. So I want, I want to be frank again to my white brothers and sisters. I can do this because I'm at least kind of white. The world is filled with different ethnicities than us who have experienced serious pain and that we will never face, that we will never know as Caucasian Anglos in America in 2017. You must be listening. If you want to be a white brother or sister who is truly solving the problem, moving towards racial reconciliation, you must, hear me, close your mouth and listen. Stop posting articles. Stop posting memes. Stop being overly loud at your family Thanksgiving. Become friends with someone who doesn't look like you and listen. Listen. 
In one of the books I read, there's a story that haunted me. A, a brilliant brother in Christ, who's a, is a systematic theologian, has a PhD in theology, he's brilliant, who comes from an ethnic minority, who frequently speaks on the issue of racial reconciliation. His name is D.A. Horton. He said that when he's talking to his white Christians, his white brothers, when he's explaining the plight or problem that he feels as an ethnic minority, he has learned from, over, from speaking on the topic over and over and over again that he cannot start any, any lecture or any sermon about the plight of minorities with, race, or with economic inequality. He can't start with education inequality. He can't start with health care inequality, which, hear me, all three of those are deep and serious issues, and he can't use them in his sermons. You want to know why? He said after time and time preaching in churches, when he brings up those three things, white brothers and sisters in the Lord will scoff at him as if he's exaggerating. That is a shame. And so instead of starting with education or income or job availability or health care, he starts with grocery stores because it can't be denied. You go into the hood and you're not going to find a Walmart or a Hy-Vee. You're going to find a mom-and-pop shop where produce is ranked 35% more expensive and where 35% of things are less available. You're going to see way more liquor stores and cash advance immediate loan service availabilities than you are grocery stores. If you don't think you're affected by racism in Kansas City, look how our city is lined up. The truce divide is real. So as white people, and we, if we want to actually be about racial reconciliation, you must not hear me. I don't want to hear of you scoffing at an ethnic minorities, telling you their problem and their pain as if they're exaggerating. What do you know? Listen. Put down what you think you might know and listen. Along with listening comes the humility of acknowledging that we don't always know what we're doing. Let me tell you a personally embarrassing story that happened this week. I was working on this sermon on 64th Street, so, so right here on 64th Street. I was at a coffee shop there, and I was getting hungry for lunch, and I have no regard for my own health, so I went to Taco Bell, which is right by the coffee shop. And so I always do this thing where I go to Taco Bell, and I eat, and I come back, so I don't lose my spots, so leave like a bookmark there so no one can take my table. So I go to Taco Bell, and I eat real quick, and then I go back to the coffee shop. But as I'm eating Taco Bell, I'm sitting there alone um, in, this, in, the, in the, whatever, the lounge of the Taco Bell, and this, this ginormous black man walked at me. He was huge. And I could tell he was a construction worker. He had a construction hat like, tucked in his armpit, and he had like, those neon vests, and he was wearing a do-rag, super baggy pants. His knuckles were cracked. I could tell he was a super hard worker. Um, big old boots, and was probably three times my size. Um, could probably eat me as a part of a taco. <laughs> and he sat directly in front of me. And hear me, all these things are on my heart, and, and they're heavy in my mind. I've, I've read three incredible books on racial reconciliation this week, and, and, and honestly, they were so difficult to read. I read a book about racism in Kansas City. I was sitting in a coffee shop when I was reading it, and I began to cry so hard that I had to put the book down and go into the bathroom because I was embarrassed that others would see me. And so this topic, which is unbelievably heavy, was just weighing on me. And I was just writing about it 10 seconds ago in a coffee shop just 20 feet away. And so this, this black guy sits in front of me eating his taco. I'm looking at him, and he's looking at the door. So his, his back's turned to me. But he gets up, and he gets a drink, and then he sits on the other side. And so we're kind of like, oh, God, what are you doing? Don't look at me. Like, I don't care what race you are. Don't look at me. We're, just, we're trying to eat and never interact, right? But, but I begin looking at him and thinking about what I've been writing about. Thinking about all these realities of, of everything I've read about Kansas City, everything I've read about history, everything that I know to be true, everything I've heard, all these stories, everything, all this praying and thinking and dreaming that I have for the sermon is represented by one man at the next table in Taco Bell. And I think to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if I could go ask him about any of these realities? Hey, tell me about your story. This, has this been true for you? Have you experienced any of these things? And so I began thinking about what our conversation would go like and how stupid he would think I was if I got up and went and talked to him and said, hey, I'm writing a sermon about racism. <laughs> but, but I started thinking about him as, as, as a test case for what happens in, in Kansas City and in the Northland. And then the weirdest thing ever happened. We connected eyes. <laughs> he looked up at me and I went, oh. <laughs> Just looked down put in my double-decker taco, and pretended I, he didn't exist and I didn't exist. And I felt so awkward because what I, what I was petrified of in that moment 
was I knew that I was staring at him. I, I was in a daze, but I was still staring at him, thinking about all these important topics. And when he looked up and realized that I was staring at him, what I was fearful of was that he was going to think that I was the very thing I'm writing about, which is racism, a racist. That he, that he was going to be uh, suspicious that I was looking at him because of the way he looked. And so in reaction to that, I made sure for the rest of the time both of us were in Taco Bell, we never caught eyes again. He walked by me to refill his drink like three times, and every time I was like, just made sure he like walked by because I felt so petrified and worried that I would be considered a racist for looking at him. And you know what, you know what's embarrassing about the story? It might not seem embarrassing to you, but what's embarrassing to me about the story isn't that I didn't go and talk to him, right? I probably would have never done that. I'm not that socially weird, to be honest. Uh, I, it's not, I'm not embarrassed that I didn't go talk to him. I'm embarrassed that when I was scared that he thought I was a racist, I didn't treat him like a human being. I wouldn't even look at him because I was so, felt so awkward. And, and so I was more concerned about not being labeled a racist than actually doing anything about racial reconciliation. And hear me, being perceived as a non-racist falls pitifully short when compared to the deep joys of having meaningful relations and interactions with those who look differently than you. Being perceived as a non-racist falls pitifully short when compared to the deep joy of having meaningful relationships and interactions with those who look differently than you. Non-engagement with those who do not look like us is not racial reconciliation. Homogeny is not pressing in. All being one uh, color with our one friends as a non-racist is not racial reconciliation. It is not. This is an embarrassing story, but I hope that it shows you that even as someone who spent countless hours reading books about racism and thinking about racism and thinking about the implications of the gospel on racism, I still don't know what I'm doing. I don't. Like, I don't know how to do this thing. And I know that might, like, worry you as the one who's in the pulpit saying that, but I, I don't know how to fix this problem. I don't. You don't know how to fix this problem. We as a church, we don't know how to fix this problem totally. We know what the answer is, the life, death, and resurrection of a murdered son, Jesus Christ, but we still don't know how to accurately apply that to all nook and cranny of this deeply complicated issue. And so I wanted to use the self-deprecating story of myself to share with you, this is going to be messy. It's not going to be totally perfect. It's not going to be totally pretty. It's going to be difficult, and it's going to be long. It's going to be marked by humility. We're running out of time, and there are so many other important issues that I want to discuss with you all. There are issues, uh, again, like the, the deep realities of white privilege and what that means. There are issues like um, same ethnic racism. There are issues like racism and classism. Um, for us, there, there's implications of Kansas City and, and our own city there are uh, the major issue of how the church has embarrassingly took text after text as a justification for systematic oppression and racism that I wish I could undo and un undo all their terrible exegesis and show you how the Bible has nothing, no justification in this book for racism. No justification in this book. I wish I could tell you, I wish we could talk about what it sounds like to others when you say things that you don't think are racist, things like, yeah, he sounds so articulate. Or what it sounds like when, when you look at a brother or sister, what it feels like when you look at a brother or sister wrong for having an interracial marriage. I wish I could destroy every ounce of racism in all of these realities, but I don't have time. And I just said, this isn't going to be an easy process or a quick fix. I'm not going to give you all the answers in one sermon. But the conversation is started. For us, the conversation is started. And members, we must keep it going. Right? We must keep it going. With humility, with repentance, with the acknowledgement that we don't know what we're doing, but with hope that he's redeeming a people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, we march forward and keep the conversation going. So I ask you to continue. Become friends, and I mean true friends, with a brother or sister who doesn't look like you, who doesn't sound like you, who doesn't come from the same background as you. Admit to them you don't know what you're doing and you want them as an actual friend. And may we as a church feel the weight of reconciliation as heavy as the weight of being made in the image of God. 
May we, find, may we feel the freedom of the cross to repent of any harbored racism, which all of us have, to have humility, to truly listen to one another, and to see the glory of God in full force as men and women who the world thinks can never be reconciled stand under the same banner of a crucified son on our behalf. Let's pray. God, I admit there is a... Uh, a feeling of inadequacy at this moment. Lord, I am an inadequate man with an inadequate sermon to an inadequate church to solve this problem alone. And so we ask for the very thing that I preached. We ask that with the scripture as our source, the spirit as our guide, and your glory as our goal, we would walk in humility, seeing that the racial reconciliation is a gospel issue and not just trying to not be racist or not say racist things, but actually push towards reconciliation. Not non-engagement, but actual reconciliation. That we would count others more than ourselves and together walk forward. Lord, if there is any racism represented in the room, and I believe there is, would you murder it? If there's harbored racism in any heart in our church, would you put your hand on that brother or sister so heavy that they must confess that like the scripture says, your hand would feel like the heat of summer and their bones would wither away until they confess. And then would you allow us as brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church, to come alongside one another and in this really embarrassing sin and this really difficult topic, could we actually walk together hand in hand, one another, multicolored, multilingual, multicultural, and walk towards your glory? We are unbelievably desperate for you in this endeavor, Lord. Without you, we will fail. Without you, the dividing wall of hostility will remain. And we will seek the justification and the validation of our own races over that of others. Continue to tear down the dividing wall of hostility and let us be reconciled since we've been reconciled to you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.